Welcome to the Soho Playhouse podcast. I'm Darren Lee Cole. This is a show about off-Broadway theater and how it serves the cultural landscapes of New York City, the United States, and the world. We'll chat with the incredible creators and influencers of this unique art form. So now, come with me backstage. Welcome to this two-part edition of the Soho Playhouse podcast. I'll share a couple of conversations from my trip to Ireland, which is home to a thriving, vibrant fringe scene. In a few minutes, I'll speak to writer and director Jenna Debris. But first, Beowulf is one of the oldest poems in English history. It is the subject of endless papers, tomes, and tributes. But the production of Beowulf mounted a few years ago in Ireland was a whole new, shall I say, take on the classic. It was the brainchild of Sam Gibbs and Peter Buffery. And rather than try to explain it myself, I'll let them tell you about it. And I had the great delight last night of seeing epic show about epic poetry called Beowulf. And I'm here with the two stars of the show. Uh, there's a two-hander. One is performing the words, and the other is doing the soundtrack live for the show. So I want to introduce you to Sam and Peter. Sam and Peter, please introduce yourselves and just give us a little bit of your background. Hey, so I'm Sam, Sam Gibbs. Um, uh, my background is in clowning, performing, toured various fringe festivals, and we're here with Beowulf that we've taken to Paris and Prague. Um, I'm really pleased to have it here in Limerick. My name's Peter, so I'm a sound engineer. Um, I also compose for um, lots of music, playing bands, guitar, drums, vocals. I uh, studied at Kingston University, uh, where I got particularly interested in audiovisuals, hence why I'm now working with Sam on, on uh, a couple of shows, actually, as well as uh, doing a, a production called Eatsops Fables, as well as Beowulf. Um, yeah, that's me. Great. So we're, ca- we're actually coming to you from what I consider to be now my new favorite bar here in Limerick. It's called the White House. So when you're in Limerick, you must make sure to come and visit the guys at the White House and say hello. Uh, what an amazing thing you guys came up with. I had such a blast watching your show last night. Uh, Beowulf is so intimidating to so many people who ever had to study it in school. Uh, talk a little... Who came up with the idea? So Pete and I had performed at Prague for in separately. And afterwards, I'd, I'd always had it in my head. I don't know why. Just this idea of doing... Beowulf, just a funny Beowulf, and I was originally going to do a solo show. But wait a minute, is a funny Beowulf? I mean, yeah, there's not so really <laughs> in the epic poem. There's not a lot of fun. I think I think it trickled from uh, Ray Winston's Beowulf. The Have you oh, seen yeah, yeah, the? Yeah. And then when I watched it, I was like, this is just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just thought it could be hilarious. Um, and then I thought, well, I, I can't do this on my own. And and, uh, and, and Pete's always got my sense of humor. And I I'd, I'd, I'd contacted him. I was like, do you want to make this Beowulf music thing? And Pete went, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. So for a little background, what I saw last night is what Sam does. Sam embodies the character of Beowulf. And what Peter does is Peter basically does a live soundscape for the show in front of us. And there's a lot of interchange between you two guys. So let's talk about that, Peter. When Sam first came up to you and said, cool, funny Beowulf, 
that needs music. What on earth did you think of this? <laughs> so I, d- I knew a, bit, a, little, a little bit about the story and I thought it would be hilarious because it's, it's just a series of sort of events. And I think seeing lots of Sam's work, um, sort of doing clowning and, and things like that, I thought that's just great because it doesn't have sort of traditional structure. It doesn't have any sort of love interest or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just how brilliant just to, to take something and just make it ridiculous. Um, and it, I don't have any sort of theatre so acting background. Um, so, yeah, bringing the music in um, was sort of, yeah, was how I was going to get involved with that. Well, I think that's what made it work for me, actually is the combination of the elements, because there's strong elements of physical theater and clowning. There's the strongest elements of solo show, uh, Sam's performance as, as a one-hander. But what really tips it over the edge is the adding of Peter, not just for the music, but there's an actual relationship on the stage between the two guys. Tell me, Sam, about how that got started where, how did you conceive of the, did you originally conceive of it just as I liked some live music or did you always conceive of, well, basically who ends up being Peter now would be almost basically another role in, in the show? I think we originally intended it to be kind of a soundtrack to the show. And as we started just playing around together, the way we make it is we just got into a space. Peter had already had this kind of guitar rhythm for the start and we just started improvising. And I think that the main point that started our interactions is there was this one bit where Beowulf walks towards the castle and I was like, cool, well, what would be good is if I, if I, you match my feet beats. And he did. And then I was like, oh, actually, what would be cool is if I then start hopping and running and I'm, I'm having to, like, jazz it up for you and you have to keep up with me. And then we started thinking, well, actually, what if then it, that kind of subverts? So from me controlling you, you then have the power and with your beats, you're controlling my walk and how I move. Right. And then you have the power. And then and that now that's a power struggle, basically, yeah. that happens throughout the show. Yeah. It's and who's got the power. Yeah, yeah, and that's what started it off. So from that, we were like, cool, well, let's play with this throughout the whole thing. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so people always want to know, like, why would you... Tell me a little bit of the history of the show itself. Why do you enter the Fringe Festival? And I ask everybody this question, why specifically now Limerick? So for me, it's, it's really simple. I've always, from my life, I've always been told by my parents, whatever I do, like, do what you enjoy. Make sure you're doing what you enjoy. And originally I was training as a performer, an actor, and I realized it, I don't necessarily enjoy acting in other people's work. I enjoy making work and performing work. And I think what you get at Fringe Festivals is you get that lovely community feel where everyone's in it together. There's this incredible variety of work um, and there's kind of all these different sorts of acts. And Limerick, we knew that there was a festival last year and we spoke to our good friends, multi-story, um, one of which is, is Peter's dad. And we're like, what was it like? And they were like, it was so much fun. And we're like, cool, well, let's... Let's go yeah, try I'm, I'm so pleasantly surprised with Limerick. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the quality of the few shows I've seen, the handful of shows I've seen so far has been excellent. And this is a really great town, isn't it? So how, how come your dad came here, Peter? Or is he from here? Or what, what's the history there? Um, so he, he, him and Jill, his, uh, the, his work partner in multi-story theatre, set up the Barnstable Fringe. Uh, which I also volunteer coordinate and helping out with some of the programming for. Um, the company Clown Noir um, came, I think, they've, I think they've been a couple of times now, uh, to the Barnstable Fringe and then set up the Limerick Fringe last year, um, which, which does follow some of the same sort of principles as the Barnstable Fringe.
Revenge. So through that sort of relationship that Multistory had built with Clown Noir, that's why they ventured out here and uh, yeah, and sort of told me all about it. And, cool. Yeah, had to come. I'm also always interested beyond the nuts and bolts of the show business, the business of show uh, side of this, that the personal side people are really interested in. I find theater is an unbelievable way to make not just acquaintances, but real friends. Have you guys formed a friendship over this work? I think you've totally misread our relationship. <laughs> Pete and I, we, we really despise each other. other. <laughs> yeah, we, it's been a terrible, I mean, we're only still going, because before, just because of the show, just keep just it together. Just for our listeners who can't see, they're holding hands right now. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's important to find <laughs> find uh, find people you work well with, find people you really get on with, and can share share that kind of enjoyment of life, enjoyment of what you're doing, um, and it makes everything. Yeah, without better. crossing over and getting too spiritual, it is truly one of the cool things about doing performing arts, right? It, I think that you know why I think it is. And I just thought of this after talking to a bunch of cast in the last couple of weeks. It's because we're taking big risk together. And I think it, like almost like uh, military uh, experiences, right? That there's a esprit de corps, there's a camaraderie that's sort of unique to our situation. What do you think of that? Yeah, definitely. I think working on both as a performer and um, helping to um, coordinate the Barnstable Fringe, you see both sides of it as well and understand that both sides are taking big risks. And uh, yeah, I can definitely align with that. Yeah, but I think that that's what binds us together. And one of the beautiful things about theater is is it's really hard to do it. Like, Sam, take us through uh, application to opening night, sort of, in two minutes. So, that's a bit... Go. <laughs> so you've got, to have, you've got to have your image, you've got to have your, like... No, snob- but I, what I mean by that is, how do you, like, what... How do you decide what beyond after the creative process, outside of the creative process, how do you decide what to do with the show, where to go, what do you really honestly, as Sam, hope to get out of this? What, what's the big win? What's the dream? What's, like, what's your fantasy out of this? That's a big question. I think a lot of it is all to do with learning experience. So the first time I made a show, I toured pretty much every small fringe festival in the UK. And I realized that some were a lot better than others and some weren't, didn't really support artists and others did. And that made me realize well, what I was actually enjoying about it and what I wasn't enjoying about it. And then you then go beyond that and start thinking about, well, which, which festivals do you actually want to do for the enjoyment? What do you get out of those festivals? And some festivals we've done and we've had people then tell us about other fringes or people who've said they run fringes, invite them to theirs or invite us on tours. And for me, it's, I'm sort of just getting back into it after maybe having a year and a half out. It's about wanting to, everyone always wants to live by doing what they enjoy. Um, and I want to try and be able to do that without sacrificing. So if I can... Yeah, that, well, that is the tricky business, yeah, right? Because yeah. it's a notoriously difficult business to yeah. make a living at. So even if regardless I, of enjoyment levels. Yeah. So what is that? How do you find that balance? I'm, I'm the, thing, the older I get, the better I get at understanding that balance. Agreed. And I think even if you can be doing something you enjoy for a year, a month of the year, then that's, that's enough. Just as long as you make sure you're still enjoying it. Um, I think that's, that's the key. Do you see a way that Beowulf can 
feed you, make you your primary living? Not Beowulf as a whole, but, but Auto I mean, Zoo. Is what a, you do in Beowulf as as a performer? I think so. Yes. I mean, I I've tried to supplement. So I did a masters, and I I did a bit of lecturing at universities and drama schools, and that's something I'd like to feed back into. And Pete and I have gone into full partnership in Auto Zoo, the company, and so we were. Well, tell me about that company. So it was formed. I trained at Philip Gollier in Paris. Uh, which is world-renowned clown school and at the back of that I, I formed a, a solo a company and with myself and then I co- worked closely with a friend of mine Nazareth and we toured shows throughout the UK and then made the show with Pete and the company slightly slowed to develop and now we're at a stage where Pete and I have gone into partnership 50-50 in the company and we're going to now start to kind of move it forward and take it to the next step in terms of generating more of an income for us and more of a support so tell me about that, Pete. Do you guys have a next project in mind yet? Or are where, like, after what I consider to be, a, as audience member, a huge success last night, it feels like Beowulf, like all theater pieces, isn't necessarily done, but in really solid shape and will grow more, but the bones are there, it's in solid shape. When or how do you start the next process? Um, so we've, we've, we've actually already started it. We... Um, we um, started playing, with, I think I mentioned it earlier, Aesop's Fables, which is a, basically a compilation of different Aesop's Fables and then sort of tied together in one one story, one journey between two characters again. Um, Will it be the same relationship where uh, Sam is physicalizing and you are instrumentally? Just the less that Peter can appear, the better, <laughs> I think. I mean, ideally we'll have him just not Eventually even Eventually we'll have room. him off stage, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, That's Peter. fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about Aesop. So, like, where are you in that process? Um, so we, so this is um, more aimed, this is aimed at younger audiences. Um, as I say, we we played with it uh, a while ago, actually, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we're, yeah, we've now got plans to revisit it, basically. Um, and so, are you writing now? Or are you composing? I mean, like, how far along are you? Um, it's, it is basically a case of pretty much revisiting the, the frame, like a, a very a very bare frame that we had for it. So we've got, we've got a, a structure in place and I think we just need to refine and, and work out, yeah. We were quite lucky, we, we did three nights of it at a festival and a friend of ours who works as a clown with Cirque du Soleil, we, he was like, we were like, we'd really love you just to come in and help us shape it. So we're at the stage now where I think what we'd like to do is have like a week's R&D and bring actually somebody from outside and have an outside viewpoint to help us shape it and find out what it is, basically. Yeah, well, that's actually really cool. Uh, the openness, uh, because sometimes it, the, the, a downside to the theater process is we become very insular. So that's interesting. So somebody not involved with the company bringing an outside voice into it um, is that threatening? Is that, a, is that, do you feel protective or are you just wide open to suggestion? I, th- I think with this one, it's the right thing to do. Because I think at the moment it's play really, isn't it? It's, it's us sort of experimenting and, and having a laugh with it and sort of getting to, getting to yeah, just play together. But it, I think, um, I think we, we do feel like we need someone to give it some shape and some structure and, and just yeah, work, iron out a lot of those Creases, yeah, because Aesop's uh, massive amount of fables, right? Or <laughs> so. Well, how do you dis- like? Did you just f- kind of throw it all out in front of you and decide, okay, like that one would 
serve towards this overall arc of a story? I or? think that was our issue, is that we, we decide on the hare and the tortoise with the through line, and throughout their race they'd have these arguments, and they'd be like, they'd learn from their experience by seeing another fable. And the parable of that fable yes. and learning yeah, yeah. from it. Oh, cool. Um, but we, I think we were just trying to put too much in and we were too focused on like what's funny rather than what helps progress the story. Right, right. that's yeah. interesting about the process, isn't it? It's like what comes first, the humor or the arc of the show and the arc of the characters? And then the humor sort of finds itself within the arc. Yeah. Or do you make the arc around the humor? Because <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that's why Beowulf works, because already the arc was there. Yeah. And so we could, we were then had, had a, an arc forced upon us that we then create the humor from. And I think that's, that, for us, that worked really well. And I think that's what we didn't have in Aesop's. We didn't necessarily have the arc. We yes. were going the other way about it. Um, so if you don't mind me asking, uh, I, I don't know how old you are. How old are you? 29. So at 29 years old, what's what's the hardest thing about this? What's like truly? What's what's the emotionally hardest thing about I this? I think sometimes it's about feeling like you're not. I don't know. Like you're hiding. So people often ask me, "Well, what do you do?" And I find it difficult. Because for me, this is this is me, and this is what I do is perform and this kind of thing. But then when I'm doing another job. Um, or an, another there's almost like an embarrassment to admitting yeah, it yeah and I think that's the thing like I feel sometimes feeling ashamed about telling people about well no this is actually what I really enjoy and I, I am an actor and people are like oh have I seen you in anything or seen you it's like that's always the question like, like, like what uh, movie have I seen you yeah, in yeah when are you going to be in EastEnders or like yeah <laughs> so that the, the hardest is the I think real, coming like, to terms self-realization yeah self-realization so I just need to it's me. I think it's that own kind of self-deprivation. I just need to. Like, By the way, that's very, very common in what we do. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just be knowing that, like, well, no, yeah, this. No, I'm happy. This is what I do. And I think the more that I do it, the more festivals I do, the more people I speak to and enjoy the work. I'm like, well, yeah, no, that's it. This is exactly why I'm doing it. Yeah. Cool. I, I think that you've got a great future in it. How about you, Peter? What's the hardest for you? How, how old are you? And like, where are you in this game? I'm I'm 28. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I think um. For a while, while I was living in London and working full time, sort of trying to maintain a living and so forth, so forth, finding time to to do it all in the energy after, you know, draining draining work. But um, I went freelance as a sound engineer recently, so it's it's so much easier now because I can block make out time and make time. I can doing yeah, what you love. yeah, and um, and I think also um, came out of the. Or just had the realization that you don't need to be earning as much money as possible. It's much more important to find time to do the things that you love. And um, I mean, re reflecting on what you said a minute ago, with society, it tells us that people so often say that whatever it is that makes you money is what you what you do, but that doesn't have to be the case at all. Yeah, I, I, think, I, yeah. I agree with that. I, I'm mm. I'm living proof of that. Mm. You know, I take similar risk at a similar age, uh, and I hear. What really makes me recoil now is when I hear people my age talk about like the hopelessness of this millennial generation. But I meet guys like you that are in their late 20s and I have great hope for the future. You're, you're both enormously talented and committed to what you do. So uh, I call out anybody that challenges the next generation. We're in good hands. Uh, so we'll... I'll add at the tag of this all the how to get a hold of your company information, but tell us one more time the name of your company and how do you like people to reach out to you and access your work? 
So the company is Autoju Theatre, so autojuthetre.co.uk. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. The email address is on the website, and we're just happy to be able to contact us anyway we'd like. But the company basic is Autoju, so auto, automatic, and Ju comes from Philip Gaulier's teaching of Le Jeu, which is the play, the game. Mm-hmm. So our idea is we're automatically playful. Please check out these two guys and their company and their great work. During that same trip to Ireland, I also had the great fortune to see a work directed by and written by Jetta Debris. And I'll let her tell you all about it and herself. Hi, Jetta. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about Trist, uh, the play. Uh, I'll let you describe it. It's always interesting for the audience to hear uh, from the author themselves about the play. Absolutely, yeah. So um, I uh, co-wrote it with my co-writer uh, Finbar Doyle and um, it is a three-hander it's uh, straight through um, uh, one scene uh, one real time and it's 75 minutes of three people in kind of a pressure cooker type situation so um, it's about uh, Matt and Steph who are a week away from their wedding and their best friend and maid of honor comes uh, and after they're hung over after a night out and kind of drops this big information bomb on, to, on top of them and it's essentially what we wanted to do was kind of pick away at um, uh, relationships and uh, friendships and see them disintegrating in front of us yeah so that information bomb it's not really a spoiler alert because I was aware of it going into the theater you advertise yes. it as part of the literature they've had a threesome yes right? yeah they have they've had a threesome and uh, and Rachel is pregnant um, because of that so it's, yes. it's kind of about it's about uh, how they all deal with it so why we started talking immediately after the show is, and we were actually discussing a little bit earlier today, there seems to be this really powerful movement of young women authors that I've noticed coming out of Ireland. And with, uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about what the Eighth Amendment is here, because uh, that, that's interesting to me. Uh, that's the one about abortion. So a lot's going on with women's voices, and I think that theater is one of the great places where we really get to air our voices. How, how do you feel about that? Hugely. I mean, we've it, it's very pertinent uh, here right now, and especially in the theater scene as well. The Eighth Amendment is an amendment in our Constitution um, that essentially puts the life of the uh, fetus above the life of the woman. So um, in the past uh, 20 years, it has been, um, there has been a lot of uh, cases um, uh, in which women have been kept on life support just to facilitate a child um, uh, growing inside them even though they're not viable um, and women uh, 13 women a day in Ireland uh, travel to the UK to uh, receive uh, abortions yeah there's like an expression that I've learned from other players about like get the boat or yes. uh, what's that how's yeah, that go taking the boat taking the boat yeah absolutely yeah. and it's it, it's something that's been so prevalent in our uh, in our country for a very very long time um, and it's it's a uh, it, it's quite a severe um, uh, issue in, in the country now and um, uh, finally there's been, there's a referendum now coming up in May um, uh, so it's it's kind of a very hot hot topic um, at the moment that we're all talking about how, how do you feel what's the role of theater in this 
Um, I think it's to reflect exactly what the voices are. Um, so I, I it's complicated, right? It isn't cut absolutely. and dried. People feel very passionately and religiously and. There's a lot going on with that, right? Hugely, and because Ireland com comes from a, a, a big place of we were uh, oppressed uh, religiously for so long and, and there's still the residue of that there. I mean, uh, uh, last year, or it was 2015, now that we, we uh, had a referendum, our marriage equality referendum, and we voted, we're the first country to vote in uh, by popular vote uh, marriage equality, which is fantastic. So we felt really kind of like that the things were moving forward and yet the referendum well, That's an interesting is, combination of religion and whatnot, right? So Isn't gay there? marriage, yes, but no gay divorce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's mad, yeah. I mean, divorce only came in in the 90s here. So, like, Well, that's interesting. They got divorced before they got married. We did, yeah. We really did. So um, it's kind of, it, it, it's a hodgepodge of a lot of different things that are going on right now, you know, on the Me Too movement, especially in theatre right now. Um, the, the artistic director of The Gate, Michael Colgan, had been called out after 35 years of being the artistic director, had been called out for 35 years of abuse. Um, and only when he retired did all of the women that had uh, experienced it come out right. and say it. Like a Harvey Weinstein sort exactly. of situation on, on a different scale. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the reasons I really admired the play. Tell us about your co-writer and what I liked about the play um, amongst many things. One of the things was I really felt that the man's voice was heard. Honored is the wrong word, but it was heard. It was laid out there that it wasn't a one-way street. So tell us about your co-writer and how you came about writing this play with a man. Yeah, 100%. So uh, my co-writer is Finbar Doyle. He's also in the play. Um, and we've been co-writers for about uh, six years now. And uh, really we felt like we, the, the man's story and the female story were, were intrinsically linked in, in, in this. You know, you kind of can't have one without the other. Um, and even though it's, it, it's quite a female-powered um, play and it's a, it's a play about um, women's issues, um, I, we didn't feel like we could extract what Matt, our character, was feeling and, and, and how he was reacting to it. So um, we thought that it was very important to, to include that, you know? The blame game in the mm. play is really interesting, the dynamics of the blame game. So to catch the audience up, the couple that's going to get married have a threesome the night before, a couple of nights before the actual wedding, right? Uh, ten weeks before. Ten so weeks before, yes. oh, because she's already, yeah. So ten weeks before the wedding, they have a kind of a drunken night where they end up in a threesome. And the the maid of honor is pregnant with the future husband's baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so so the there's a bit of a blame game there. And what's interesting is they all gang up on each other in different combinations, right? That's kind of interesting. They really do. You know, we wanted as much as possible for, uh, to create a script that was was tight enough that everybody was wrong and everybody was right at the same time. Right. And that there was you mean no like life? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, it, it's too easy to write a bad guy, you right. know? Um, so we wanted everybody to be the bad guy. And at the same time, everyone is their own hero. You know, they're all out for themselves. They're all trying as much yeah, as possible. Yeah, because there's this whole woman's power together thing kind of ganging up on him. And he's like, wait a minute. And yeah. And they... The women turn. It's like I don't think so, bitch. You did. You know, it's really interesting. That's it. Yeah, they all turn on each other, and and then they gang up when when they when they think that they can kind of uh, they're stronger together. They will, but then those those alliances are are crushed again. So it's yeah. it's really interesting to be able to see them flip every night. You know? Right, and there's really powerful moments in the play that you just you don't think about. We live in such a modern world, and we think sometimes, well, I can get past that. And even though it's super uncomfortable and a little bit weird, I can get past it. But 
to me, one of the most moving parts of the play, when, when, the, when the friend announces that she's going to keep this baby, mm. the bride-to-be uh, has this really incredible, uh, powerful moment of, well, don't you see what you've taken away from me? Like, you've, you've taken, describe that. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, absolutely. Ta- t- talk about that to the audience. Yeah, so that's kind of a moment at which she's talking about everything that she feels like she lost, that she never she can never gain back or something that she never even had that has already been taken away from her the the idea of motherhood with with her her husband to be is kind of is is soiled and 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 scuppered by by this moment and and it's about her uh this play soiling their relationships and uh her friendship with with her best friend as well you know and that that crushes her more than any sort of petty jealousies right Absolutely. that seems to be the death knell yeah yeah that's exactly what it is because we wanted it to it to be about like a female friendship as well that kind of disintegrates and that you know the, it, it, it's very prevalent now for it to be like women are all together and we're we all have to be friends and everything and it, it's right. not the case yes. sometimes you know sometimes you can you you can fall out and and, and it's really painful when when friendships fall apart right and it, it i like the complexity of that especially in today's environment that you know what appears to be on the surface one pretty terrible thing going on, and I'm specifically talking about the hashtag Me Too yes. uh, business. But often there are layers beneath that that complicate matters rather significantly. Absolutely, yeah, and you're absolutely right. It's it, it's the word complicated. You know, we're not we're not uh, we're, we want to put these characters forward as as uh, as three dimensional beings. You know, and and, uh, and sometimes people are wrong, and sometimes people are you know um, bad at, at at articulating things, and and that's just how we are, and it, it makes things worse. <laughs> right. Um, so, I'm also interested. And young writers, so did you get any pushback on this particular play, or has it just been a love fest? Like the night I was there, everybody was on board. I think I went to your first preview. You even, did, did yeah, yeah. But has the, play, the play had been done previously, though. It had, yes. Because it was in way too good a shape for that to be the first time ever the play was done. Uh, we had performed it seven times before. And so this was our eighth time that you saw us performing it. Um, but yeah, so it's... Um, so talk, talk about any pushback or like, what have the reactions been? Has it all just been unified? Oh, that's cool, that's important, or did you get any... I think, well, we, we got a couple of different... It, it's really interesting seeing audience members coming out, out of it because some people are like oh we we can't choose who to side with and then other people are like we hate matt (laughs) or they're like we hate steph or we hate rachel or how could they do that they've chosen sides absolutely they choose sides and they argue for the rest of the night and i've had a lot of people messaging me afterwards going you know why would rachel do that i'm like well i can argue with you forever i think the most interesting discussions about plays happen after the show totally when you sort of pick up the battle that was on the stage and, and yeah, carry and it on in the going. pub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we did that night, remember, we right did. after seeing the show. We were just talking and talking and talking. Constantly, like we knew them, yeah. Yeah, that's really great about theater. It's brilliant. It's the best things, that those debates afterwards. Yeah. You know? yeah. So what's it like uh, for a young female playwright right now in Dublin, Ireland? 
What, how do you feel about your opportunities? How do you feel like, what's the best thing about it? What's the worst thing about it? It's really exciting to be in Dublin. You know, it's uh, you, you kind of think that it's a small town and yet there are so many little things happening in all the nooks and crannies. You know, um, we, we've been getting a lot of not um, kind of financial support because the, the Arts Council have had a lot of uh, cuts. But what we've been getting is development support. We've been getting uh, spaces. We've been getting kind so who, of people. Where does that come from? Individuals? From companies? It, or? Yeah, it usually comes from companies. Um, so the Fringe themselves um, have given us a, a, a desk, like a like little space that we, we can actually the, write the with. Dublin Fringe. Yes, the Dublin Fringe. So, um, w- which is really lovely. So we get to kind of evenings and weekends. We get we have a desk, which is really nice and yeah. and so well, important. It just it just makes it all feel real, right? Yeah, it really does. Like it's a real thing. It's a real job. It's it's not some kids' fantasies. Yeah. That's exactly it. It legitimizes How it. important that is. It's so important. I mean, when you're writing a, a, a play on your couch, you really feel like if you're watching Netflix, you're cheating on your play. You right. know? So. <laughs> if you have a desk, you better get to work. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a really nice thing about it. Um, I can't think of them. Um, uh, I, sw- I suppose... What's the hardest thing? What's like, personally, what's the hardest thing about being your age, attempting theater, like... There's... Because you seem to me the kind of person that's committed to making theater your thing. Absolutely. It really is. And I suppose there's a lot of people that will, will try and take advantage of you. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of bullying in Dublin is what I would say. There's a lot of um, uh, uh, an older generation um, owning theatres and uh, keeping them. And uh, and there's a lot of bullying happening that, that hasn't been called out yet. That There's uh, some fantastic people that are calling it out now, you know. So um, there's a really positive wave of people kind of going, we have to stop this bullying, we have to stop this kind of thing. But uh, at the same time, because it's such a small town, it's very easy easy to manipulate people and to um, uh, to put people in, in situations where, w- you know. Would you be, can you share an example of where you or how, not naming names, but like a, an incident of where you felt bullied in this environment? Um, well, uh, certainly I was um, uh, at the gate and, and with Michael Colgan, um, uh, who was called out, which is uh, fantastic. Yeah, and that was you quite know. big news here. It really was big news. And I was in AD um, on one of their shows. And um, it, it, it's just, it was an atmosphere, certainly, that I experienced. That, that it, you know, and, but having said that, my director uh, uh, at the time, he stood up for me. You know, so it's about people in so those what, positions. What, what was the atmosphere? What I mean, I wanted... I'm, purposefully trying to dig a little deeper yeah i, yeah, I mean was it is it sexual in nature is um, it power in nature it's both it's both so it's it, it's kind of barking orders at you or or uh, being incredibly rude in front of people um being being sexually inappropriate that kind of thing he was known for being sexually inappropriate with with, with yeah, young women. lots of directors go around barking orders yes but you kind of instinctually know when a line has been crossed right yeah you do you do you and and it's it's when they try and embarrass you i suppose um in, in front of those things now i mean i i only experienced a very small amount of it you know but it's i suppose um it's very easy to bully people in in, in a town like this and i think the the really wonderful thing is that well, people sa- are calling sadly it in any town yes well there you go yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it happens in in the biggest towns i've met in new york it happens unfortunately uh, we like to think of theater as a safe haven. Yeah, against yeah. that, people that work in theater are normally quite liberal in nature, Absolutely, or yeah. certainly open-minded. And yeah, but it still exists in our world, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I suppose it's it, it's up to to people if they see it to call it out. You know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Are you like a lot of artists I meet around the world? What's your impression of like New York? Do you want to bring your show to New York? I would love to bring our show to New York. He says with a with a wry grin on his yeah. face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we did share with the audience, we've been discussing just that. 
we uh, before this chat. Yeah. Um, I, uh, New York is just the pinnacle, you know, it really is. It's, it, it, it's, it's always, it's the city that you want to go to. It's the city you want to experience. It's, it's the city that has theater that is, you know, that's, that's at the forefront of theater as well, you know, and, and that's very exciting. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. certainly I think still in the world for English speaking, Theater, yes. New York, absolutely and Western theater. Yes, are really. What, how about London? What's your impression of London? And I love have you ever London. done a show there? Or no, we'd love to do a show in London. I've done a show in Edinburgh, and I'm doing another show in Edinburgh this year. Um, so but you were part of Fringe, right? Yes. In Edinburgh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our audience is beginning to hear more and more pieces of that. Yeah. Describe in your own words Edinburgh, because I try to tell people the absolute madness going on up there. Oh my god! And it's hard to. So the more voices that tell the audience what's happening up there the yeah. more interesting so what's your impression of edinburgh it's mental it's absolutely <laughs> mental and like it can only be seen to be believed you know it's something like the year that we were there it was um how many shows are there it's like it's Over thousands. Three thousand. yes yeah and what they insane. say is if you watched all of the shows back to back consecutively it would take you years like it yeah, would take you like three years, years. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's amazing it's such a buzz and like the people are incredible well, sometimes a one-hour show could feel like years oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah that too <laughs> if you get a couple of those then yeah, <laughs> it's then, not great yeah, it's, you're, you're aging in dog years yeah. at that point <laughs> edinburgh years yeah edinburgh it's years. not great i remember we were pulled into a basement we were walking down the road at like 11 a.m and pulled into a basement by somebody putting on an australian accent um saying that he was going to do a workshop with us and there was two people in the audience myself and my my uh, partner and we were there and he did like an art workshop with us and it was the funniest thing in the world and it was I mean, only us i mean that's what we love about it right it's brilliant it's like the worst possible like stay away scenario ever yeah. some guy with a fake australian accent yeah. hauling you into a room where you're the only two. i mean yeah. this is a oh hostage situation it, it really it was essentially a hostage so did you really situation. like it or was it stockholm syndrome <laughs> <laughs> i'll have to get back to you on that <laughs> he, he did let you out i i think i hope i'm still not there <laughs> <laughs> i'm not the guy i promise okay, you okay good <laughs> uh what's your biggest dream Wow. Um, I think I think what's really lovely is that my biggest dream is my is my continuous dream is to be able to continuously connect with people is to be able to connect with audiences. Well, that and is one of the best things about the festivals, right? Yeah, it really is. It really is. You get the, and it's immediate. You get people coming in, you get you can see them in the audience. You can see them cringe or you can see them groan. Or you can see them laugh and clap and and immediately you know whether whether your words are landing or not. And I just think that that's fantastic. You know, it's a dream. What, what a great dream to be able to continually connect with an audience and with people. Yeah, uh, that's a great that's a great description of why we do theater at all. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, do you only write? Do you act? Do you do other elements of uh, what? people see on a stage yeah all i do is write and direct so that's it i've never tried acting before that's right i should have mentioned uh, forgive me that you're also the director of yes, this project yeah, as well indeed yes. yes and it's very tightly directed oh thank you so much yeah, almost as if you wrote it <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> what, what about that that is actually an, uh, an earnest question now um what about uh, directing your own work do you, do you, is that always a good thing do you see some traps in that um yeah absolutely what what I always say is um especially with new writing and kind of with, with my own writing um we get into the into the uh, into the room and if you have like a long rehearsal period which is three weeks to four weeks um what I generally will do is um uh, at the end of the first week the script is locked and we kill the writer 
you know? Right. So, like, as so much as you, possible. So then what you mean by that is you become the director. I become the director, yeah. And I should have been the director earlier, but, but I'm the director and the writer in the first week. Well, you week, have to be because then, you're developing and both hats are necessary. Exactly, exactly. But by week, by, by the start of the second week, I should have killed the writer and Finbar too, if he's in it. Yeah. Um, uh, we should not be considering the little clicks in the, in, in the script that aren't, are the, you know, it's, it should be the director's uh, job. It should be the actor's job at that stage. So. Do, do you feel, though, that it suffers when you have to put your writer's hat away and put on just the director's hat? Um, Do you know what I mean? I, yeah, I know what you mean. I suppose maybe it's it's about the writer taking more of a back seat and for I, me to ever present it, ever presently be there and to, to kind of consider it. And uh, a lot of the time, I mean, if actors come to me and they're like, this feels weird in my mouth, it's going to change, you know, because if right. it feels weird in their mouth, they're right. You yeah, know, yeah. so yeah, I do listen in, in that sense. Absolutely. Uh, how, how many plays have you and Finbar written together? Um, play full length plays. Yeah. Um, we've written uh, Trist will be our fifth full length play. Yeah, wow. um, we we've written um, uh, short plays as well uh, for compendiums and, and and festivals and stuff. And we have also written um, short films. Do you see the um, a time? I mean, it, this could be a little bit indelicate, and I don't mean it to be. But do you see a time? That you want to write alone? Do you always see a writing partnership? Have you always written together? Yeah. What, what about well, that? We've done individual things as well. So, so um, uh, we yeah, we can we certainly do kind of uh, write individually and uh, apart and together, which is but, nice. But like, do you get kind of hurt? It's like, what, what do you mean like, you're writing a show without me? How could me? you be taking that project away from <laughs> yeah, me? Well, Don't you think I'll be able to do a good job on it? No. Yeah, I know. Well, it could kind of leave there if know, you're not careful. Yeah, yeah, it could. It could. And I, I suppose we know each other so well now that I. I don't think there's any chance of us offending each other, which is nice. Yeah, that is good. And, I, and meeting you both together, you seem, I can see why your writing relationship is successful because you really do listen to one another. It seems not forced Absolutely, or yes. posing at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you both have what I think is essential for good writers. You have an innate curiosity to the yeah. subject, uh, which is really, which is really uh, admirable. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's what, that's what, that's what you want. So any, uh, crazy rehearsal or performance stories yet? Has anything weird happened? During Trist? Yeah. Um, let me see. There was a point at which all of the actors started getting into an argument about who was actually writing the play and I had to stop it. <laughs> Wait a minute. Tell me about that. I had to immediately stop because I was like, I was like, guys, if you, if you, finish this argument then there's a plot there's a plot hole in the play like if you guys can figure out who's actually right then we haven't done our jobs as writers oh I thought you said who was writing the play who was writing within the correct play. within yeah. the play yeah. oh, I was going to say who's writing the play that could get really messy <laughs> <laughs> let me assure you who's writing the play <laughs> luckily we knew who was writing the play <laughs> oh so who was right well yeah but that's kind of what you want out of your characters exactly. right all exactly. fighting for their that's it yeah it almost it almost well, were they cups. all defending their own character? They were. Yeah, okay, they well, were all defending their God. own character. Oh, yeah, I know. It'd be terrible if they were on each defending other. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, we had we had to cool off that rehearsal. But other than that, it was really good. Well, awesome. Well, listen, Jetta, thank you for spending a couple of minutes uh, with us. And you never know. Hopefully, we will see Trist in New York City sometime soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Darren. Thanks for listening to the Soho Playhouse podcast. hope that we inspire you to attend a show at our flagship Soho Playhouse in New York City or at our new location in Las Vegas. 
or for that matter, wherever creative theater lives in your town. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. If you have a question or comment, reach out to us. Our email address is mail at SohoPlayhouse.com. And to find out a lot more about who we are and what we do, go to SohoPlayhouse.com. And remember, as Edward Albee said, people come to Broadway to look. They come off Broadway to listen. <laughs>